This has been a night of blatant stupidity. Since I was born, I dreamed of being a Budweiser Clydesdale. Only problem is, I was born a donkey. So all my life, I practiced the Clydesdale walk. And the Clydesdale pull. I even tried hair extensions on my lower legs. And then came my big interview. They looked me in the eye and said, What makes you think you can be a Clydesdale, son? And what was my answer? said something, right? Just a bunch of kids who just couldn't handle their liquor, and uh, those aren't the real good baseball fans in Cleveland. Uh, I'm feel kind of sad because uh, this has always been uh, although it has been drawn of late always been a good baseball town and you hate to see this happen in a great game of baseball and I think we're going to have to take some stronger measures for people that uh, run on the field and whatever it may be. Prepare to engage on this week's digital audio program. 
that I call Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ball players and their stories. What's cracking, you seamhead freaks? What's juicy? Welcome back to the JoJo this week for the Grassroots Baseball Podcast Show, spanning the globe. Backwards K-Pod, where every Tuesday... I enjoy infiltrating your eardrums and cerebellum with all the stories of the historical moments, the unforgettable cast of players and characters, the many uh, cathedrals that have housed those players and moments. Pontificating the seams, as I like to affectionately call it, my mission in life is to spread the gospel of baseball, preserve the history of our national pastime. It's a gift, and it's meant to be handed down through the ages. And maybe, just maybe, hopefully, I'll inspire just one person to fall in love or back in love with the game, or maybe look at baseball through a different lens of perspective. I would never charge you freaks. For the baseball content here at Backwards K-Pod. I believe that knowledge, information, it's the most powerful weapon on earth. And I want my audience to be empowered seam heads. For all that baseball has done for me throughout my life. It is an honor to be the gatekeeper for the almost 160 years of baseball that we've covered here. And the nearly two years of collecting ballplayers and their stories. Hello everybody, I'm Jake Robinson, I've got your hookup, holler if you hear me, this is show 110, and the fifth week of the 2023 MLB all season, but yeah, almost 160 years of baseball history here at BKB, from Moses Fleetwood Walker, all the way up to the worldwide phenomenon, that is Shohei Otani today, the unicorn. And when I did that Otani pod earlier into this BKP journey, back in March of 2022, I believe, I said on that show something like, you know, I hope to make this part one of Show's Rise, and I'll drop part two of a story after he retires. And, you know, the goal is to end the backwards K-Pod programming once and for all with that part two story. And honestly, I'm not a part one or and two guy. I, I have a catalog full of the titans of baseball. I don't like breaking stories up into two. I give you as broad of an overview as I can of a story of a person. Almost everyone I've done could be broken down into two parts, two and three parts, honestly. But I like to move it on. And if I planted a seed in your baseball psyche... To research the further, you know, further about a topic. Well, that does my seam heart, seam head heart well. And I'm going to give you all I got. I feel good, plenty of gas in the tank. I'm motivated to accomplish this goal I've set for myself from show one. And it looks like the future of BKP and Otani just became a little clear. Of course, unless you live on a rock by now, you heard. And you already know that Otani has signed a historic mammoth contract with the Los Angeles Dodgers 
for 10 years, $700 million guaranteed, making him what is believed to be the highest paid athlete in any sport, in any country around the world. And I don't know if it's true, but I'm hearing that $680 million of that is deferred to the 10th year, which... You know, that's crazy. I don't even know that that's legal. Is that legal? I've been waiting for a definitive word on that question before I, I, you know, I accept that as the gospel. But, you know, from it looks like he's, he's going to make $2 million a year, years one through nine of the deal. And then you know, t- year 10, they're going to give him $680 million. And if that's true... They need to work on that. That's not quite fair. I don't think that's in the best interest of baseball, where these big uh, money market teams can go ahead and buy players and not pay them until, you know, hire them to these $700 million contracts. Which people are pissed off. He makes $70 million. You know, the, the commissioner of the NFL, Roger Goodell, makes $70 million a year. I think about that. The announcement was broke by Shelly Otani on his Instagram account when he basically said, I'm sorry it took me so long to decide, which I don't know why he's apologizing for that. It's week five of the offseason, people. It's still 2023. I feel like he was fairly quick considering all the teams who wanted in. He basically apologized to the fans of baseball, which is class. Unnecessary, but class nonetheless. And he announced his signing, and he announced he signed with the Dodgers. And, and I love that he broke the news. He kept the negotiation minutia and noise away from the media. He controlled the narrative, which doesn't surprise me, considering his backstory that I already have documented in here at Backwards K-Pop. And when you live in the media today, that only cares about being first, Instead of accurate, you, you get reports of him on the verge of signing with the Toronto Blue Jays or Arson Judge ready to be a giant. And those guys can laugh at old irrelevant pissant baseball podcaster like me. And I'm going to tell you, I will probably never break a story in my life, but I promise to be accurate. I mean, it's gotten so bad now. Now. Whether or not this is a good deal after 10 years remains to be seen. I've heard many solid arguments about it working out with others saying it will be catastrophic. And I've actually enjoyed the banner on social media and there are valid positions on both sides of the argument. As there usually is in any argument. This is quite an investment. The, con- the contract surpasses FC Barcelona's deal. From 2017 to 2021 with football superstar Lionel Messi. And that was a $674 million pact. And it also blows by the $679 million owed to Kylian Mbappe. If he were to return to PSG Paris Saint-Germain of the French Football League. But in terms of American sports, it exceeds Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes' 10-year, $450 million extension. 
Uh, he makes almost double that now what his former uh, teammate Mike Trout pulls in, who agreed to a $426.5 million extension with the Halos in 2019. Now, as I told you in last week's show, I don't think this move in itself moves the needle closer to the World Series for L.A. I've heard many people say they're the favorites, but... Here's the thing, like I just said, the Dodgers have backloaded that deal. And it has payment deferrals that will ensure that Otani will be paid by the team long after his career is over. And it also leaves the Dodgers with wiggle room to add more pitching that they so desperately need if they want to get back to the World Series. It remains to be seen if that includes them still going after Japanese pitching import. Yoshinobu Yamamoto, whom the Yankees had meetings with on Monday. Or maybe the other Japanese hurlers, Shoto Imanaga, at a more reasonable price. You can also see the Dodgers, I I can see them, you know, trying to broker a deal for Corbin Burns, Tyler Glass now, Dylan Cease on the trade market. The Dodgers have Walker Bueller coming back from arm surgery. I'm sure he's going to be put on a strict innings count next year, as will Otani in 2025 when he comes back to pitch in. uh, Well, he'll he'll be able to pitch next year. So when he comes back in 2025, I'm sure he's going to be on an innings count. You got Bobby Miller, who is young and brimming with potential. Didn't look too good the last time we saw him on the bump against Arizona in the playoffs. And I'm assuming Kershaw will be back on, you know, these one-year deals. And he doesn't want to pitch anymore. I'm sure they're just going to keep rolling out these one-year deals with him. So I expect him back. You know, so you got Bueller, Miller, Kershaw. The Dodgers need pitching folks. So, it's, while it's nice to have three former MVPs at the top of your lineup and Mookie Betts, Show, Freddie Freeman, but the team was already statistically the second best offensive team in the league behind the powerful 2023 Braves. Offense wasn't the issue last season. They, they were exposed in the post last season when they sent... Uh, you know, Lance Lynn out there to save their season against the NL champion D-backs. And I still expect the Dodgers to go after pitching hard over the next few weeks, whether that is through free agency or, you know, one of these trades that I mentioned. That remains to be seen, but there are numerous trade possibilities available for the right price, and the Dodgers have the necessary prospects to make it happen on the trade front. I think Yamamoto should have been their number one target, really. And maybe they got a little nervous after hearing about the resources that the Blue Jays had to offer Shoei Otani, and they shifted gears in their priorities there. So, as it stands, now fuck A-Rod money. The Unicorn is making Euro football money, baby. And much like I said, when Philly signed Harper from D.C., you know, the the Halos signed Trout, the Pods. They went in large on 
Tatis and Manny Machado. All these teams, they're investing in a brand. And all those contracts have paid off. The Dodgers see Otani in the same vein. But honestly, as an international brand, leading the expansion and globalization of Major League Baseball into the future. So it looks like you freaks will have me around for another 10 years at least before I can end this BKP saga with the part two of that Otani story and appears today in 2023. Those chapters, they're going to be written for the Dodgers. And speaking of another fierce offense in the making, the New York Yankees trade for Padre superstar outfitter Juan Soto and a move that any other year would be the hottest story coming off the stove, but it has been seemingly swept aside from the headlines with the signing of the unicorn here. And I said that I believe there was a deal to be made there if San Diego was more responsible with their demands. But the Briars stuck to their guns. They got exactly what they wanted in the deal when the Yankees traded pitchers Michael King, Drew Thorpe, Brady Vasquez, and Johnny Brito, as well as catcher Kyle Higashioka in exchange for Soto and center fielder Trent Grissom. So a couple things that caught my attention from this deal, first of all, I can't believe the Yankees folded to these demands. I mean, usually the Yankees are a hard team to partner out with when it comes to fair market trade deals. And I did see some Yankees fans on social media ripping the team for mortgaging their future pitchers. But, you know, here's the thing. Most of those dudes are the ones who tell me all the time, the Yankees don't rebuild, they reload. And, you know, this is what retooling Reloading entails. But on the positive, the god-awful outfield the Yankees were rolling out there last year. It's been revamped with the trades for Alex Verdugo, Juan Soto, as well as Trent Grisham, who was a fantastic club man in center field. And for the Padres, they got exactly what they were looking for. Four pitchers they see in their organization for the next five years at least. After watching, you know, an exodus of five players, uh, pitchers coming from their staff and hitting that market, including Cy Young Award winner Blake Snell and super closer Josh Hader. And much like the Dodgers, the Yankees are in on Yamamoto as well. And what is ostensibly a race for the 25-year-old Japanese stud, if either one of these teams, the Dodgers or the Yankees, procure his services, chances are that team will be very competitive next year. Either way, there are still plenty of arms available with Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery still out there in the market yet to be signed. The Red Sox acquired slugging outfielder Tyler O'Neill in a trade with the Cardinals for Nick Robertson and right-handed pitcher pitching prospect Victor Santos. And... I think this is a sneaky good move for Boston. The Cardinals basically have seven outfielders who are a lot alike, and O'Neill struggled with losing playing time in ABs last year. So this could be a case where a change of scenery benefits the buffed-out slugger. As I can see him, you know, 25 to 30 home runs with that swing, and Fenway, the green monster. I see that easy. And speaking of the monster, oh, 
O'Neill is a gold glove caliber defender on left field, so I get. I think this is a sneaky good move. I have a feeling Boston is probably in on Yamamoto as well. I'd keep an eye on Boston. They, they're in a sneaky position right here. The Texas Rangers made moves to fortify their bully when they ate 37-year-old relief specialist Kirby Yates to a one-year $4.2 million contract. I think this is another under-the-radar deal that will serve the defending champs well as a bridge to Josh Boers and Josh LeCurk at the end of that uh, pitching staff. Yates has spent the last two years pitching out of the Braves bully. Last year was a solid effort by the veteran right-handed pitcher when he pitched 60 and a third innings. with a 3.2 ADRA, averaging 11.9 strikeouts per nine and holding batters to a minuscule 167 batting average. And we all know Texas can straight mash, but the work GM Chris Young does with his pitching staff this winter will be the determining factor for the opening day champs, uh, for the defending champs next year on opening day. And last but not least, the Baltimore Orioles have signed closer Craig Kimbrell to handle those closing deals uh, duties for the American League East champions this year. I see him as, you know, this kind of placeholder. The Orioles and GM Mike Elias, they had a need after last year. Last year's Mariano Rivera award winner for the AL's best closer, Felix Bautista, underwent TJ surgery in October. And Kimberl was signed for $12 million for the 2024 season, club option for 2025, or a $1 million buyout, making him the highest paid Orioles player during the Mike Elias era. Kimberl is a 14 year vet who ranks 8th on the all-time saves list with 417. And I think this is a way better deal than meeting the rightful demands of Josh Hader, who the team was also in contact with. If Kimbrell holds up well this year, the Orioles will have the ability to pick up the option and ease the mountain back into his closer role. And one more starting pitcher appears to be on the Orioles' radar who may not have the finances to match the big market dollar-for-dollar dollar deals, you know, you know, set by the Dodgers for one team. They do have a wealth of prospects. They can deal for the right starting pitcher. Uh, there is some local scuttlebutt around Baltimore that some prospective buyers have been snipping around the Orioles' fire hydrant with designs on a possible purchase of the franchise from the Angeles family, which... Show from my lips to God's ears, I pray this is true. As much as faith as I have in Mike Elias, Sigma Dell, to do the right thing by the city and the team, folks, I probably never had less faith in any one person in my whole existence than I do in John Angelos. When I see Otani sign for $700 million, it makes me worry about the future with all these studs of the current team at the market, especially guys like Adley, Gunner, Jackson Holiday. The Angelos family will eventually fuck this up, 100%, no question. They still haven't signed a lease. 
They do not have the intelligence to extend Rockstar or Gunny early in their careers, a la Atlanta Braves. The Orioles have become winners in spite of their owners, not because of them. They bring absolutely nothing to the table that makes the Orioles a premier team or destination for free agents. But look, the offseason rolls on. There have been manager changes, trades, signings. It's been a very good offseason so far with still many players available to be signed. And I'll be here every week to give you that offseason skinny. I see our platform here is beginning to swell from all the people who want to travel to Cleveland today for some 10 cent beer. As I look to the west of Terrapin, I see our beautifully manicured ball field with the two teams ready to get after it. The starting pitcher for the home team has finished his warm-ups. The catcher has thrown the ball down to second base. The umpires call play ball. And the infield has thrown that pill around. So, Freaks, that's my cue. To get you cements, to kiss and hug your loved ones goodbye. Let's load up this trusty BKP time travel choo as I call all aboard. And this week, I will be setting our time and destination. For June 4th, 1974, Municipal Stadium, Cleveland, Ohio, where the Texas Rangers and Cleveland Indians will be involved in one of the worst, most ill-conceived and executed stadium promotions in baseball history, 10-cent beer night. So, hurry, hurry, step right up, make yourself comfortable, find your spot. Take off your shoes, open your kimonos, get in where you fit in as we've been space and time to go to almost 50 years ago, the city of Cleveland and one of the craziest games in the long history of baseball. And as a man in his 50s, I like to think this really isn't that long ago, but the truth is, folks, it's a long time ago. In a galaxy far, far away. So, while we take this trip to blue-collar Cleveland in the 70s, I need you to understand the landscape of a city hemorrhaging life from her veins. In fact, 1974 is a year of volatility, not just in Cleveland and cities throughout America, but throughout the world. America is failing to capture the initiative and the bloody Vietnam conflict. For 19 years now, our boys have been coming home in body bags. And people, not just in the country, all around the world, they're rallying for peace. And they're asking, when is enough enough? Across the pond, the troubles are are brewing as bombs are being detonated all over the UK, as the Catholics and Protestants 
the British military, the Irish Republic Army, they're literally trying to kill each other over religious differences and territory. Hmm. Sounds kind of familiar with things in the world today, right? The planet is mired in a global recession that spans from 1973 to 1975 as a result of skyrocketing gas prices and a double-digit inflation rate of around 11 to 17%. And because of the Watergate scandal, U.S. President Richard Milhouse Nixon resigns in disgrace. All the world's financial uncertainty of the times and instability, it trickles down to cities like Cleveland, who at this time saw factory jobs being shut down left and right. The shipping industry, which, you know, that city relies on that. It's in shambles, and it's leaving tens of thousands of Clevelanders out of work. Unemployment was an, at an all-time high in the city since the Great Depression, and the city was suffering from a poverty crisis, plain and simple. Not only were the citizens struggling, but... Cleveland was literally dying. The rivers were so polluted from the factories that the majestic Cuyahoga literally caught on fire. Twice. The only thing struggling more than the city and the citizens of Cleveland may have been the hapless Indians. They were an absolute laughingstock that played in the biggest stadium in the majors with very few fans in the ballpark on any given night, you know, because of the price and the shitty product that downtrodden but loyal tribes fans were being exposed to. And if you were a fan of baseball in the 70s, you may recall that familiar commercial jingle that touted baseball, hot dogs, apple pie, Chevrolet. They go together in the good old USA. Well, That memorable ad campaign, it debuts in 1974, which also was the year that a number of MLB clubs decided that beer and baseball went together so well and would surely draw crowds in these bleak financial times that it should be offered for 10 cents a cup to fans on, you know, certain promo dates. Now, the Milwaukee Brewers hosted the Minnesota Twins at County Stadium in May, and they executed a common-sense approach to the promotion, limiting each man of age to a maximum of two beers with chips that were used to purchase the two beverages. The game goes on without a hitch, and it seemed like just another ballpark reward for the loyal fans, a nice little break for the faithful. The whole complexion of this promotion, it changed when a six beer per purchase limit was set with no oversight whatsoever. And there was no, you know, no one was there to stop fans from returning repeatedly to, you know, get six beers. The result was an all-out riot in the ninth inning of a game between the Cleveland Indians and the Texas Rangers. So, now that I've given you the war-torn backstory of 1974, a year ripe 
with civil unrest, financial uncertainties and fears around the world, corruption in the highest office of the most powerful man on the planet, as well as, as a once proud city slowly imploding from the inside out. So now that I've laid this all out in your head, I can now begin laying out how the right and how the, you know, eventually the Indians forfeited this game. So I want to, you know, lay it out how this game played out as we continue our trip through time portals to get to that crazy June night in Cleveland. But to tell the story of 10 Cent Beer Night and that Cleveland riot is... And to put it all in its proper perspective, the, the story actually begins on May 29th in Arlington Stadium when the Rangers hosted the Tribe in their own 10-cent beer night promotion. In the bottom of the fourth, Rangers outfielder Tom Green was walked, followed by a Lenny Randall single. The next Rangers batter hits a ground ball to Indians third baseman John Lowenstein who feels the ball cleanly, steps on third base to force Green out, and then fires the ball to second to double up Randall, who inexplicably slammed his shoulders into the mixed section of Indian second baseman Jack Brohammer, setting him flying and preventing him from turning a legitimate around-the-horn triple play. Young Indians reliever Melt Wilcox, he retaliates with a pitch in the eighth inning that flew by Randall's neck, six inches behind him. So Letty places his left hand on his hip, and he leans on the right side of his body, using his bat like a cane. And he and Wilcox, they're just staring at each other. One of those, you know, pissing contest moments. Neither man wants to look away first. The pitcher finally breaks gaze. And he stares at the ball. A, a wry smile is being held back from a, breaking out over Randall's face. And in Randall's mind, he's telling himself, I got something for this son of a bitch. On the very next pitch, Lenny executes a textbook drag bunt. Not textbook in the fact that he's going to get a hit with this bunt. Textbook textbook in the fact that he has Wilcox moving just as he had anticipated before he turned it square. And with Randall running down the line, Wilcox runs over to field the butt and tag Lenny when Randall <laughs> he calls an audible, he turns left on the baselines and he blasts the hell out of Wilcox with a hit that would have made Jack Tatum proud. St- uh, you know, Stephen Atwater style. Setting the Indians reliever to fly backwards upon collision. And without missing a beat, he straightens his running path back towards first and continues running for the bag. And I'm sure many of you have seen this. And if you haven't, you got a search bar Lenny Randall Mil- Wilcox. But... I love how, after pancaking Wilcox, who was fielding the ball and looking to innocently ap- apply the tag, Randall continues running the first. <laughs> like, nobody just saw you blast 
pour Wilcox into next season. Keep running, Lenny. You're good. <laughs> and I'm going to tell you right now, one person who did notice was Indians first baseman John Ellis. And Randall immediately goes for a nut shot when he gets into John's house. And like two proud Brahma Bulls fighting for dominance, the fists start flying between the two. As both team dugouts and bullpens empty and this now all-out brawl. And once order has been restored in the field and the two teams retreat to their corners to finish the game, the overzealous and inebriated Rangers fans began pelting the Indians players and manager Ken Aspromonte with food and beer as they returned to their dugout. And it got to the point where some of the teammates had to physically restrain a few of the boys from going into the stands and handing out a little justice to these rambunctious fans. Since the Rangers were due to play the Tribe in Cleveland six days later, reporters asked Texas manager Billy Martin was there any concern on his part for any blowback from this game coming up once the team took the field and Municipal Stadium. The charismatic and always competent skipper shot back. Oh, hell no. There ain't, no, there ain't never any fans at Indians games. We'll be fine. But, you know, Billy was fair with that assessment. The heyday of the organization, the days of the Hebrew hammer, had faded into the baseball horizon like all stars do in the baseball universe. Municipal Stadium was massive. At this time, she had... Over 70,000 seats inside, around 77,000. And on an average night in 1974, 85% of the seats at home games for the tribes went unsold. That's, you know, 56 to 60,000 seats. And that's if they managed to sell 20,000 tickets a night, which they don't do. More than they did, you know, they just don't, usually there are like 12, 13,000 people at Indians games this year. But, June 4th would be different. In response to Billy and his smart-ass comments besmirching the pride of any two Indians man living in Cuyahoga County. As well as the belligerent actions of the Rangers fans in attendance, Pete Franklin accepted the Billy Martin challenge to stand up for the tribe and Cleveland Pride. It was Pete who spent the entire week whipping the Indians fans into a frenzy on the radio, pleading with the Bleeding City to come on down to Municipal and show these Billy Martin Rangers that he's full of shit. We ride and die with our Indians through the good. And let's be honest, mostly bad. We may be a city and a team that is down right now, but we do have our pride. And the Indians owners themselves, who were caught up in the aftermath and the emotions of the series, they began reading the tea leaves, and they could feel a sense of grassroots pride swelling, waiting to bust through the stagnant city. But People are flat broke. Baseball is a tough sell, especially when the team is this atrocious. 
and Lord knows who said it first. But I imagine someone in a boardroom somewhere said, 10 cent beer night. And it was probably in all innocence, someone probably figured, hey, the city is dying. The citizens, our fans, well, they're broke and unemployed. The team sucks. And it's goddamn Billy Martin. We, we, we need to capitalize on this moment. How about... And that's probably how it went down. The wheels of history have now been set in motion. Ten cent beer is happening. And here we are, folks. Coming out of that wormhole. And straight into Cleveland. Pulling up, pulling up alongside old municipal stadium. Where the tribe used to play before the Jake. It's June 4th, 1974. And man, oh man, the city of Cleveland looks alive today. All these smiling Indian fans waiting to enjoy some baseball and drink some beer. And hey, at first glance, you would never be able to tell if this is going to go off the rails. The city feels optimistic today. A few of these guys, they started drinking a little early. I, I see, but that's okay. Indian fans need to blow off some steam after some tough seasons here by the club. What could possibly go wrong? Everything seems fine. And it looks like over 25,000 fans have showed up tonight. Which may not seem like a lot to you youngins, but the average Tuesday night game at Municipal Stadium that year... And barely drew twelve to thirteen thousand, like I told you. So it's pretty much double what the stadium staff is used to accommodating. As you can see, we have two pretty teenage girls in bikinis. Which, whoa, nineteen seventy-four, teenage girls in bikinis serving beer to a bunch of men. And don't forget, folks. The national legal drinking age at this time is 18 years old. So it's a younger crowd here. I hope those girls stay safe. We'll, we'll check on them during the game. That's kind of a red flag for me right there, though. It seems as though the six-beer limit is going by the wayside rather quickly, freaks, as demand is exceed, exceeding its supply at the concession stands. And it appears... That a decision has been made to allow the fans to have their cups filled directly by the teenage girls at the beer trucks parked behind the outfield fences. As we move into the second inning of the scoreless game, it's becoming increasingly apparent that the mostly young crowd of drinkers are getting loopy on the barley and malts. Tom Grieve has just opened the scoring for the Rangers with a solo shot. Off of Prince Peterson, who, yeah, if you remember, Fritz was half of that much ballyhooed uh, white swapping tandem along with Mike Keekins of the Yankees a few years before the story. And I got that in the BKP archives on all podcast platforms or diamondsnakejigs.poppy.com. So after Tom Grieve breaks the game open with a blast. And with the next batter, Jim Pergosi at the plate, a voluptuously 
breasted BBW runs onto the tribes on deck circle and presents her breast to the crowd. She then attempts to kiss their base umpire and crew chief Nestor Shylock before security forces escort her off the field. The Rangers take a 2-0 lead in the top of the third on back-to-back one-out doubles by Jim Sundberg and Cesar Tobar. With really the only disruptions being, you know, the occasional firecrackers exploding periodically throughout the game and in the stands. But the fourth inning, after the Tigers tacked on another, or I'm sorry, the Rangers tacked on another run from yet another Tom Grieve home run, as Grieve is rounding third in his home run trot, a man runs onto the field wearing nothing but his birthday suit and a sock. And he's wearing that sock on his foot, just to let you know. He slides feet first to the second base. Stark freaking naked, baby. And I don't need to tell you, fellas. That's got to hurt, right? That's going to leave a mark. And at this point, there is kind of like this exhibitionist theme developing... Dudes are running around Cleveland with their little portobellos on their 1974 fur coats, flapping in the breeze, sliding in the bases during the game. They got full-finger chicks showing off their cans. It's a little out of control and embarrassing, but nothing yet that indicates a ride is about to break out. It's just a bunch of broke Cleveland drunks who can't handle their liquor. And they want to get naked, as, you know, young kids who are prone to want to do when they're inebriated. But, things are about to change as the tenor of the now fun-loving crowd is destined to turn. So I'm going to tell you what, Priest, me and my chocolate tabby feline friend and co-host, Gunner, we're going to take a break. I'm going to hook my boy up with some treats, replenish with some fluids, take a rip or two off the bubbler. Set my course of action for the rest of the story. And when I come back from the break, we're going to go to the bottom of the fourth with the Rangers up on the Indians. Three to nothing, June 4th, 1974, 10-cent bear night here at Backwards K-Pod in the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network where we collect ballplayers and their stories. BRB, you freaks. Have a drink on me. I'll see you on the other side of the break. Julio looking for another four-hit night. Haggerty run, base hit, Julio is fourth in the night, Sammy to third. That's another four-hit night for Julio Rodriguez. Now, this is crazy. I mean, just challenging Julio Rodriguez right now is just suicide. New standard established by Julio Rodriguez. With 17 hits in a four-game stretch, beats the record of Milt Stock of the Brooklyn Robins set back in 1925. Orioles this year, 47 comeback wins, most in the major leagues. Mullins drives it, high and deep right field, Cedric Mullins has done it again! Do you believe this? A ninth inning, three-run demolition! 
Carson from Cedric Mullins. And the Orioles have the lead again. Holy smokes. The rebase, first pitch. Hit in the air. Right center field. Weimer back, so is Freelich. Jumping and making the catch. It's Sal Freelich in right center. The ball game is saved by Sal. Freelich and Weimer converging in right center. And somehow Freelich came up with that catch. The Yankees can't believe it. I'm not sure Weimer and Freelich even believe it. What a defensive play by Freelich. Fighting for a pennant race, bloody lip and all. I mean to tell you, this is some kind of play. You have the feeling that Bobby Witt is going to hit the ball hard somewhere in this event. You do. And you hope that it's over the fence. Marcelo Zuna needs a home. Well, you know he's going for it. Marcel hits it to right up. Get going. Yes! 307! The Braves tie the all-time single-season home run record. The Big Bear with a big fly. Ozuna with RBI number 100, and the Braves have tied the all-time record for home runs in a season. 307 home runs. Oh, the diving play made by Baez gets up and throws him out. That was unreal. Goodness. You run out of words with Javier Baez. Javier Baez flying through the air. Backhands a scorcher off the bat of Profar. One of the great plays you'll see. Two outs in the third. He said, I'm tired of seeing this Tobar kid. It's, time to, I wanted, it's my time to shine. Really flat out got him into a bullet. This Spencer Torkelson that actually handcuffed Torque at first base. Torque got the in-between hot. He wanted the short one or the long one. He got the one in between. But he handled it. What a play behind him. Now the Marlins were the last team this year without a grand slam until Jazz hit one in the eighth inning last night. And he sends this one out to right Today's the day for all the fans here cheering him on for this milestone. One hit till 2000. There it is! 2000! A milestone moment for a Pittsburgh icon back home. Touch City. Maria and the kids, how good is it that they can enjoy that here in Pittsburgh? Man, it's hard to even speak right now. <laughs> 
Andrew McCutcheon, an amazing milestone, and the Fizz don't want to sit down. What a moment here at PNC Park. In the center field, way back, Mullins on the run, at the track, at the wall, he leaps, and it is caught, caught by Mullins, he brought it back, one of the all-time great catches you will ever see, he took a three-run shot away from Byron Buxton, that was real, and that was spectacular, he put that on the highlight reel for him to get his first gold glove, he is getting close, Kyle getting some deep pop-ups, but out, fairly routine. There's a deep drive to right center, on the run, Cochran back toward the wall, dives, did he make the catch? I think he made a fantastic catch. Mike Cochran running full speed, diving backhanded catch. One of the best catches I've seen in a long, long time. Sensational. Cochran playing around towards left center, this ball's in right center, and he's running parallel kind of with the warning track, lays out in the track, and just stretches full. Robbery of extra bases of Crawford by the former Giant Tuckman. Hang a star on this one, a fabulous defensive play. Howdy, y'all. This is Big Tex, Gage Geen, executive producer of Backwards K Pod. In Texas, we do everything big. After football and golf, there's probably nothing I love more than going fishing and enjoying a good crawfish boil. The only thing I dislike about going fishing is the lingering odor it can leave on your hands afterwards. Well, the Fishing Hand Cleaner is an all-natural liquid soap perfect for overpowering fish and bait odors from your hands. I can't tell you how many times I've eaten steamed crabs, lobster, shrimp, crawfish, and then washed my hands with regular soap, only to touch my eyes half hour later, and my face begins to melt off due to the damn Cajun no base spices. Well, we also have a hand cleaner, specifically formulated to use after eating shellfish and other seafoods. Perfect for cleaning spicy, smelly hands after a Texas-sized seafood feast. In these cases, don't settle for anything less than our crawfish hand cleaner, our crab hand cleaner, or the fishing hand cleaner. An ingenious trifecta of natural hand soaps developed and owned by a disabled Navy veteran. He and Jake have a true connection, as they were boot camp shipmates all the way back in 1989. So he is family, folks. And one thing we do here at the Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network is look out for family. So you can support two grassroots companies by two former shipmate Navy vets. Crushing big bowls of shellfish or fishing on the banks of your favorite river while you listen to BKP. Sounds like a great day. You know, in fact, hey, Mom, where are my poles? I'm gone fishing. There is also a buffalo wing hand cleaner in development as we speak. To check all of the incredible products of this great company, you can go to www.crawfishhandcleaner.com or call the home offices at 713-588-0290. That's 713-588-0290 to support the grassroots company that supports your grassroots podcast show. 
That's crawfishhandcleaner.com or 713-588-0290. To prepare for your summertime shellfish feast or that fishing trip you're planning, crawfishhandcleaner.com. I just wanted to get his hat. So I ran up behind Jeff Burroughs and I had it in my hand and then I dropped it. And so I went down to pick it up and I looked up and he looked at me and I said, oh hell, he kicked me right in the thigh and he stumbled and fell down from the kick and then the fans just really started pouring in. Billy Martin said that he thought that Burroughs had been knocked down, and so he gets a bat and says, boys, let's go get him. And then uh, the Rangers are defending themselves against this mob coming in. Now it's a full-scale riot. There has to be 200 people and more coming on the field. Had it not been for the Indians players coming out to help us, it had been a real tragedy. Welcome back to Backwards K-Pod, where we collect ballplayers and their stories. And this week, I've been telling the story of Ten Cent Beer Night, June 4th, 1974, at Cleveland's Municipal Stadium in a game between the Rangers and the Indians. And I explained that 1974 was a tumultuous time, not only in America, but globally as well. There was violence throughout the world, the Vietnam conflict, the troubles in the UK. There's a gas and fuel crisis in every country. President Nixon has his hands caught in the cookie jar when his complicity in the Watergate break-in and bugging of the DNC committee offices is revealed in tape recordings. And he resides in disgrace. The city of Cleveland has a crumbling infrastructure, unemployment, poverty is at an all-time high in the city. The Raiders and Indians would play a game at Arlington Stadium six games earlier that saw a brawl spark 
by Milt Wilcox and Lenny Randall, and which unruly fans threw food and beer at the Cleveland players in the dugout. And most Indian players, well, not most of them, but many of them, they tried to run into the stands to confront the mob, but were wisely held back by teammates. When asked after the game if Billy Martin was concerned about possible consequences from the on-field fight and the fans' behavior, Billy quickly shot back no, because nobody goes to Indians games anyway. So, local Cleveland DJ, uh, radio DJ Pete Franklin, he hears the clip of Billy flapping his gums, and he gets the Indians faithful all lathered up in a hornet frenzy. And the Indians management, sensing that the loyal fans are motivated to actually show up to watch their boys take on Texas, they decide to reward fans with a cup of beer, strows, for 10 cents with zero limits to how many. And when I dipped, the score was 3 to nothing. Rangers going into the bottom of the fourth with Rangers outfielder leading the way for the Texas Ball Club with two solo shots by Tom Grebe. And really up to this point, there have been some drunken nudity that has been comical at some level, but there's been no signs of things getting violently out of control. The fans have been boisterous in their booze for every Rangers batter announced. And you can hear the banging of firecrackers being set up intermittently throughout the game in the stadium. But all that is about to slowly change as fans are getting drunker and drunker with a pocket full of dimes. And those poor girls I mentioned that were trying to hold it together once the concession stands were getting backed up with fans... They just up and left as the crowd was becoming overwhelming for the young ladies and downright scary. Eventually, they just threw up their hands and they scurried off the van and disappeared into the mass of humanity. The fans now have total control of the beer trucks. In the excitement of their conquest, they literally pick up a picnic table and flip it over the truck and they just straight up bum rush the kegs. The fans are filling up their cups at will. And many literally have their open mouths under the tap. Catching that sweet nectar directly into their palate. And what was ostensibly a 10 cent beer night has become free beer night. And it is beginning to spiral out of control beyond the outfield fences. And it's beginning to spill into the stadium by the bottom of the fourth. Leron Lee laces a line, liner comebacker at pitcher Ferguson Jenkins that ricochets off the Hall of Famer's stomach for a single. And the intoxicated fans watching their teams get shut out in the fourth there. That's when they begin cheering the loudest cheer of the game at that point. As Jack uh, Jenkins lays on the ground, clutching his midriff in pain, the Indians fans rise from the seats and began chanting, Hit him again. Now, Fergie would remain in the game, but he gave up singles to the next two batters and Charlie Spice and Oscar Gamble 
that resulted in Lee scoring the Tribe's first run. Before Leron had scored, he, he made it to third on a close play uh, off the spike single. And that caused Billy Martin to come out and argue the play with Shylock. And just as the Rangers fans had done to Indian skipper Asramonte the week before in Arlington, the Clevelanders released a tsunami of beer cups on the combat of Billy Martin as he made his way back to the dugout after the argument at third. And Billy, never to back down, he's never one to back down from confrontation. He took the pelting and he blew kisses to the salty fans. Neither team would play to run, but again, the game was interrupted when a father and son now jumped the outfield wall in the playing service, and they mooned the crowd and the Rangers outfielders. In the top of the sixth, Rangers third baseman Toby Hara drives in grieving for Gosey with the triple, pushing Texas to a 5-1 to lead. But Cleveland would battle back and their half of the sixth with a two-run inning themselves. Bohammer leads off with a double, and he scores when Lee is safe at first after a Mike Hargrove fielding error. Error. Lee would advance a second on the E. Fergie retires Spikes, but he was then spiked by Lee at third base on a gamble ground out. So due to the injury... Fergie leaves the game and he's replaced by Steve Falco. The next batter, George Hendricks, he singles off a Falco, cutting the Rangers lead to 5-3 to three through six innings of play. And the score remained there until the bottom of the ninth. With Falco still on the bent, on the bump, trying to close it out for the Texas win in a hostile environment. Indians manager Ken Aspromonte, he went to work and he called on three consecutive pinch hitters in the home ninth. Ed Crosby, Rusty Torres, and Alan Ashby. And all three would come through with clutch base hits. Now, Hendricks would start the rally off with a one-out double and then score off the Crosby single. John Lowenstein lost to the sack fly to center field that tied the game. And with the possible winning run on second in Allen Ashby and two outs, it was at that very moment it became all too evident that some fans were more about carousing than the actual game. So again, you got man on second, two outs, the winning run on second base. And all of a sudden, two men jump the rail, land on the Major League Diamond. And one of the men, one of the guys, they attempt to steal Jeff Burrow's hat. And that was that sound bite you heard coming out of break. The man had his hat in his hand, but he dropped it in the outfield grass. When he bends over to retrieve his prize, he looks up at Jeff Burrows, who, folks, he was a slugger this day. He's a big boy. And Burroughs is staring back at him. And he knows he's in a world of fucking pain. Burroughs kicks the man 
and the impact of his cleats against a man's thigh, it causes him to fall down on top of the dude. And Martin, who was watching in terror from the dugout, he thinks that the fan has attacked Burroughs and taken him down. So he grabs a bat from the rack and he says, Let's go, boys. Let's go get him. And the Rangers players, they each grab a bat, come charging out of the dugout to aid their teammate and brother. And like something out of a Braveheart battle, the Rangers behind Billy Martin leading the charge, heading for the outfield. Well, now they begin to see literally hundreds of drunk Indian fans charging them from the outfield at the same time. And the melee is on. Making the battle of the bastards look like child's way. Once in the outfield, Martin sees that Burroughs is flustered but not injured. And the jovial frolicking nudists have disappeared and it's been replaced by an angry mob of Clevelanders brandishing knives, clubs, chains, and what looks like a few shivs packed fashioned from a, uh, pieces of stadium seats. The 25 Rangers players, they find themselves surrounded by at least 200 angry junks, drunks, with more and more headed their way. Tumbling over the fences, onto the field. And the Rangers had been ambushed, and they were being tangled up in a dangerous web. Indians manager Aspromonte gathers up his players, and now the tribe has entered the parade, trying to protect the Rangers from their own fans. As the situation continues to disintegrate, crew chief Shylock has no choice but to declare the game a 9-0 forfeit to the Rangers. The security force of 50 stadium officers and two off-duty Cleveland policemen were so overwhelmed by the mind-numbing violence, they had to call for assistance. 20 additional patrol cars responded to the call. As the cops are making their way to the, towards the powder keg of a stadium, players and fans are being pummeled by fists, feet, and flying projectiles. Cleveland pitcher Tom Hilgendorf had blood running down his face when he was cut by a folding chair that was thrown at him. Rangers first baseman and future Indians player manager Mike Hargrove was seeing stars after being hit over the head with a jug of Thunderbird White Lightning. Burroughs jammed his thumb, punching someone in the head. Even umpire Nestor Shylock was a victim of a chair shot, and he cut one of his hands, defending himself somehow. And all 12 people were arrested, and Frank Barone, the chief of Cleveland Stadium Security, he asserted he would have needed 25,000 cops to handle the crowd that day. Shylock was not pleased, saying afterwards the fans were uncontrollable monsters. I've never seen anything like it except in a zoo. They were fucking animals. And Billy Martin expressed the sadness that the great baseball city of Cleveland went bonkers that day. And he stole the Indians ball club for what he called saving our asses. And I found that ironic that Billy Martin is scolding somebody about handling their alcohol. When in retrospect, we know exactly what happened from there, right? 
after Martin Aspermonte and the players escaped to a tunnel and off the field. The manic frenzied fans began ripping up sod, stealing bases. They never did recover or find the whereabouts of first, second, and third from that game. The game marked the first forfeit in the Major League since September 30th, 1971 when fans stormed RFK in the district during the Senators' last game in Washington, D.C. before Baltimore, Texas and becoming the Rangers. Both Toby Hera and pitcher Dick Bosman of the Rangers, they both played in that last game at RFK. And Bosman would go on to say that the difference was the Washington fans were not mean. They were just sad. Baseball fans looking for momentums. Ten Cent Beer Night was a mean, frightening, ugly crowd. And Breaks, I think I'm going to twist this up like 6-4-3 around the horn and tip on out, y'all. I want to thank all y'all for taking time out of your 24-hour day to stop on by, checking out my art. You could have done a thousand other things, but you caught this wave and rode it to shore with me. And for that, I'm most extremely grateful. I promise you, Seamheads, I'll be up bright and early, taking my hacks in the cage, trying to be better for you guys next week. And with the Otani deal signed, sealed, and delivered, it looks like I have a 10-year window with this show before I can end it with the Otani Part 2 pod. I look forward to meeting the challenge for you freaks if you'll have me. With 10 cent beer night in the books with a backwards K next to it, I got to get you nerds back to your loved ones waiting for your return at Terrapin Station. So, with the story of 10 cent beer night getting smaller and smaller in my rearview mirror, I now turn my attention to our never say die baseball hydra. I reach under my Komodo, pull out my katana, and I chop the head of that beast, only to see two more baseball topics appear in its place. Next week, we're going to take a deep dive into the career of a baseball phenom who went from being a high school baseball legend in Baltimore to straight to the majors with a distinguished playing career for the Tigers of Motown before ending his journey in the House of the Immortals, the National Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York. Next week, it brings me great pleasure to bring the story of Al Kalon. Sounds like fun. I hope to see y'all there, but look. Y'all already know that's another story for another pod. You can email the show, backwardskpod at gmail.com. Our Twitter page is at back underscore k underscore podcast. The TikTok page and the YouTube channel is Backwards K-Pod. But I'm usually hanging out at the most comprehensive and interactive baseball group on Facebook. The Let's Talk Baseball Podcast Network. Answer the questions. Come on in and join the fun. Please remember to share with your CMAT buddies. Leave a rate and review. I ain't scared. I do what I do when I do it. 
and no one does it better. I believe I've accomplished my goals this week. Vinny, Vinny, but see, I came, I saw, I kicked its ass. Thank y'all for coming out. God bless and win the day. Parents, if you see your kids sitting on the couch, got their noses in the bone looking bored AL. By all means, take those little monkeys outside and play a game of catch. You never know when it might be your last time. And like my boy Shay Hillenbrand told me in our one-on-one sparring session in the dojo last year, you go to hell, Andy Bennett. See you next week, Steamheads, with the Al Kaline bio. Me and my boy Charlie Guns, a.k.a. Gunner, a.k.a. Charlie Baltimore. We're throwing up our Gunner Henderson, y'all. That's our deuces, freaks. As in, see you next week. Peace.